Curl Next Door. Welcome to Curl Next Door, episode five. Hey, Steph. Hey, Tamara. This is Stephanie Fidalic. Well, <laughs> the person who just introduced herself is not Stephanie Fidalic. I'm Stephanie Fidalic, <laughs> and I'm sitting with Tamara Robbins Griffith. <laughs> yeah, hi. I'm I'm Tamara. I'm Steph. Welcome to Curl Next Door. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Thanks. This is a podcast. Kind of about curly hair, but not really a beauty podcast. No, in fact... Well, we're not beauty experts. No, we like to be beautiful. We <laughs> we love to be beautiful. I think you're beautiful, Steph. I think you're beautiful. And we have curly hair, and we're, you know, trying to deal with it, learning new tips and tricks along the journey. But it's really more about the, the thread that connects all the curly-haired people in the world. And... Um, finding interesting stories to tell each other. That's right. And there are many. Speaking of tips and tricks. Yes. Have you any to share this week? Well, I had a good, had my hair cut, mm -hmm. second cut with uh, my new stylist who brought my curls back, bringing me back away from the, the flat irons and the wands. And uh, his name is Joey. And we were talking about, I was telling him about like the worst one of the worst haircuts I ever had because when you have curly hair, you're kind of always looking for someone who's going to kind of have that magic secret and unlock your best hair. And so I went, I was looking for a curly haired specialist sometime in the, I would say late nineties, early two thousands. And I can't remember where it was somewhere in Toronto, but this person, so so Joey told me the technique is called channeling. I didn't really know what it was called. Um, but basically, they were trying to thin out my hair because it was so bulk, big and bulky and puffy. And so they, like, cut random pieces from inside the the middle the hair, right? I know this is hard to explain. Yeah, and no, if you I saw, get it. If you saw a picture of me at the time, you probably wouldn't think <clears throat> that that's, like, there's anything wrong with that hairstyle. However, if I went to put my hair up, there would be just like random little corkscrews that are like two inches long sticking out all over my head. Like it doesn't really make any sense. So it's really a haircut for <clears throat> you wearing your hair down all the time. Yeah. And even in even if you're wearing your hair all the time, you could have random hairs poking out that are super short and nobody knows why. And I was trying to, I was asking him, I was really pressing him like, okay, you're a hairdresser. Tell me in what situation would that ever be? Like, would that be a really good idea? Cause I don't think it was. And he basically said like, that's probably never a good idea. But if you had some kind of a like hipster mullet maybe now, and you wanted a lot of volume on top, you could have those shorter hairs to, to prop up the poof on top. Yeah, that but sounds cool, actually. <laughs> maybe. Maybe if you had a hipster mullet in the year 2019, it would make sense at some avant-garde salon. But for me, it didn't. And it was, at the time, trying to be like a solution for curly hair. So so that was a conversation I had with Joey, who I love, and he's amazing. And you know what I did, actually, for the first time last night, which you said you've been doing, and I kind of was a bit intrigued by that, is I went to bed with... 
not wet, but like very damp hair. Um, I had done, you know, kind of loosely still trying curly girl method. I'd put in quite a bit of product, washed it last night because I had a thing this morning and I didn't want to have to wait like hours and hours this morning for my hair to dry. So washed it last night, put in a lot of the product, let it dry probably 60% and then went to bed and it was cool. Like I woke up and I was like, oh, it's pretty good to go. Did you sleep with it? Like how did you prepare your hair for your sleep? Uh, not much. It was like 60 to 70% dry. So it wasn't, you know, it was kind of on its way. Um, I had not scrunched the crunch out. You know how people say S-T-C-O. It's like an acronym that curly on the internet. And, but, you know, what am I trying to say? Reddit, YouTube. Yeah, the chat, all the, the ch- chats. All the discussions. What does STCO stand for? Scrunch the crunch out. So it's like after you've put in your gel oh. or whatever hair product and you're letting the curls dry in their clumps, it's like you wait till it's dry to get it not crunchy and crispy. Right, because you don't want it to have the wet look. No. Right, so crunching out your curls after your product is dried yes. gets that wet look away. STCO. Got it. So, yeah, I hadn't done that last night. Like, I just kind of left it. But the only thing I did was I switched back to my silk pillowcase. So, uh, did you? were you wearing a turban <laughs> no. or any clips or anything? Nothing. Okay. And oh. you're happy with the way it works? Yeah. You woke up? Yeah. That's I was amazing. Like, oh, I think I'm going to start shifting my routine to possibly nighttime instead of morning. Yeah. It takes a lot of the pressure off. Although <laughs> I will say I did that a couple days ago and I usually sleep with a turban because I go to bed with my hair sopping wet, but it's in the turban. So it dries in the turban. Your microfiber turban. My microfiber turban. Sometimes it works really well. And sometimes, as I learned a couple days ago, it didn't work very well. And my bangs in particular got really smushed. And like all the curl got smushed out because the way I turbaned it. So there's a risk. And it was right. I had a I had an early morning presentation at work. Mm. <laughs> so I was I did, had done my hair the night before. So yeah. I didn't have to stress about it that right, morning. Right, right. And then, of course, I stressed about it all morning. Oh, but so do you think it's it's not because your hair was too wet because you've been typically going to bed with very wet hair? Yeah, I think it's just the way I shoved it in the turban. So it's, right. I mean, like any curly haired girl on any mm-hmm. day, it's always a risk. You have no idea what you're going to wake up with. You just don't know. Yeah. But I will say I got a silk pillowcase a couple weeks ago. Game changer. I love it. And like, not only is it better on my hair, like it's getting, it's not getting as frizzy overnight, Mm -hmm. but of course I'm not waking up with creases on my face, like skin creases. Right. Because when I sleep on cotton pillowcases, I get Mm -hmm. lines on my face. Extra added bonus. It's the best. It feels nice too. It does. It 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 feels very luxurious. Like you're in some fancy hotel. Yes. Yes, it does. Good. We all need to enjoy like the little things in life because other things in the world are kind of scary. That's right. Well, do you want to tell us about your curl next door? I do. Let me just get my notes. Get your notes. And we're we're trying something different this week where, okay, so we had that episode where we both picked the same character from the movie Brave. So now we're trying, we told each other the initials, so we don't know but we know the initials. So we're going to keep playing around with this to see what works. Yeah. So I think it's a good system. Okay. Although it, it tips our hat a little bit because when you told me your initials, I was starting to guess what they were. Guess what it was. It could be this person or that person. Anyway. All right. Okay. 
So my curl next door is Beethoven. <gasps> wow. I, I don't know a lot about his personal life, really. <clears throat> it was a ton of fun doing research for this one because there's so much. No there's kidding. so much information. Um, and I fell into a bit of a music rabbit hole, but going to try and keep it succinct. So Ludwig van Beethoven was a German composer and pianist. He was born in 1770 and died in 1827, age of 57. Okay. He's considered Pretty one young. of... young. Yeah. But I guess of that time... Mm-hmm. Although it wasn't that long ago. This is A.D., right? <laughs> yes, definitely <laughs> A.D. Um, he's considered one of the greatest composers of all time. And while more people refer to his deafness, which I'll get into shortly, mm-hmm. instead of his hair, he was known to have wavy hair. Okay. And in fact, there are some paintings of him where he's got a cute little curl on his forehead. <laughs> so more about him. Most people... Um, probably recognize his music, uh-huh. even if they don't realize that it's his music. Oh, yeah. So I think that's true for like Mozart and Beethoven, like yeah. just so many famous symphonies. Yeah. And it, a lot of it gets, um, yeah, a lot of it gets used in popular movies and in pop culture. And, if, the, and Warner Brothers cartoons and, and Looney Tunes. And interestingly, um, you know, after a certain period of time after one's death, you lose the mu- the copyrights and musical rights. Oh, right. So it goes into like the public sphere. So you can mm-hmm. use that for free, right. um, which is probably quite motivating for a lot of movies, building soundtracks, because they yeah. can use a lot of this old music for free. Right. So one of his most popular songs or mm-hmm. compositions is the Fur Elise, mm-hmm. which is probably really familiar to anyone who's ever learned to play piano. So pretty. Do, 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 Yeah. Do you remember, do you remember McDonald's had a recital commercial in like the 80s? No. Because when I was doing research for this, I was reminded of that funny little spot. Anyway, it's a little girl and she goes up to the piano and she's, her parents have promised to buy her McDonald's if she plays well. Yeah. So she's playing the fur Elise and like, in her head, singing a, a song about McDonald's. Anyway. Wow, that's like staying power that you still remember this ad. It's true. Or here's another popular one of his. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah. Dun, 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 What's dun, that dun. called? You're going to find it. It's the uh, Symphony Number no. 5 in C it's minor. The, it's the Bugs Bunny, like, stepping, like, Bugs Bunny and Elmer Fudd, probably. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> okay. And then another popular one, and then I'll stop. Mm-hmm is um, Think Dead Poet Society. I feel like Ode I... Ode to Joy. Ode to Joy. From his Ninth Symphony. Right. I played that in uh, on the violin in like grade seven. Did you? Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. So very popular, obviously. Mm-hmm. So he was born in Bonn, which is part of Cologne. Mm-hmm. He had a natural born talent and originally was taught by his father. He was also taught keyboard by a family friend who would wake him up in the middle of the night. This family friend was like an insomniac. Mm -hmm. And so would just drag five-year-old Beethoven out of bed to like teach him the keyboard. Oh, that sounds a little strange. It does. But not a keyboard, like. Well, in the research, they called it a keyboard. Did they? Yeah. Because wouldn't, did they have like electronics back then? Well, (laughs) (laughs) I don't think it was an electronic keyboard, but they were calling it, I guess it was a piano that they called the keyboard. Like a small... 
piano. It was probably a small piano. Some yeah. keys on a board. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna go with that. That makes okay. sense. Um, his father, Beethoven's father, tried to promote him as a child prodigy, and was trying to take a page out of Mozart's book, mm-hmm. as his father did the same years earlier. So they got a lot of attention because it was like, come see this child prodigy who's like absolutely genius on the piano. And what's the span? Like, do you know the time difference between like Mozart and Beethoven? Is it like Brittany and Christina? They were, so Mozart predates Beethoven. I'm going off memory. It's like 20 years, maybe. Okay. 20 or 30 years. I'm trying to com- think of some kind of reasonable comparison. Yeah. There, I'm going to, I think about, <laughs> I could look this up. It's probably mm-hmm. 20 or 30 years, maybe 40 years, something like that. They did exist at the same time. Right. The, they did cross paths and they had a lot of people in common, but it's unclear if they were really contemporaries or not. Did they have a, I want to know, like, was there a rivalry? No, there okay. wasn't a rivalry. Okay. Although it sounds like Beethoven did have a lot of rivalries with a lot of his contem- contemporaries. Oh, okay. He was, he had a lot of excellent friends, mm-hmm. but he also had a lot of competitive friction with some of them. Okay. Including one of his many teachers was Joseph Hayden, who's another very well-known mm-hmm. classical composer who taught him after he moved to Vienna. And they had a very tumultuous teacher-student relationship. Okay. So shortly thereafter, he was courted by Prince Lichnowsky. <laughs> All right. Take your word for of it. Of Austria. Mm-hmm. Lichnowsky was a music patron and predating his patronage of Beethoven also had a fractious relationship with Mozart. Mm-hmm. So see what I mean? There's like a lot of overlap at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, Beethoven actually dedicated seven musical compositions to the prince. Uh, however, after a 10-year patronage, the two had a quarrel which terminated their friendship. Mm. Something to do with Beethoven refusing to play for French officers and then later defiling a bust of the prince. Whoa. So he, the man was pissed. Yeah, but I like that Beethoven had a little spunk. Yeah. Defiling a bust. He did know? have spunk. Mm. I did get that sense that he was okay. quite spunky. He had several commercial successes, but unfortunately, he also started to lose his hearing. And how old was he? Well, good segue. Mm -hmm. This started when he was around 31. Okay. So still a young man. Mm -hmm. The reason for his hearing loss is unknown, but it could have been from lead poisoning. It could have been from syphilis. Seems like everyone back then had syphilis. Yeah. Typhus. A lot of things were deadly. That's right. A lot of diseases and a lot of... um, yeah, lead. <laughs> a lot of lead. And then also, apparently, he was known to dunk his head in cold water to help stay awake. Because oh. he would be furiously composing into the wily hours of the night. Right. And to stay awake and alert, he'd dunk his head in water. And I guess after time, that can really, like, injure your ears. So that could have been why, too. Mm. So he was almost completely deaf by the age of 41. Whoa. And put himself into self-exile. He gave up performing. He gave up appearing in public, and yet at that time he composed some of his best work, hmm. which is fascinating to me. Yeah, the man was practically deaf, and was writing music he was never going to be able to hear, aside he, from vibration. He had enough, like sense memory to rem- to kind of do it in his head. That's right. That's yeah. how talented he was. So it was during this time he wrote one of my favorite pieces, the Allegretto second movement from his symphony number no. seven. It's considered one of his best. Mm-hmm. If you've seen the movie The King's Speech, mm-hmm. you would know it. I have seen that movie. Da, 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 da,
His deafness caused profound depression. He often contemplated suicide, but resolved to live for and through his music. So it's like beautiful. Yeah, that's nice. And when he premiered the Ninth Symphony, Mm -hmm. he could not hear the orchestra nor the applause from the crowd. He directed the performance and had a, another conductor, mm-hmm. like so, another man conducted, but he directed the conductor. Okay. That'd be challenging. Yeah. But in, like an incredible story. Like he yeah. had to turn around. So like it concluded and he had to turn around to see the applause because he couldn't hear it. Is there a big movie about him? Because, you know, there's Amadeus. Is there a version of uh, that? I don't know. Probably. There, there would be. Probably. Be. Yeah. Amadeus is excellent, by the way. Mm -hmm. One of my favorites. So Beethoven was known for having messy hair. I'm going to bring it back to the hair. And I guess his friends wanted a piece of him to remember because a lot of his friends on his deathbed clipped pieces of his hair and kept them for souvenirs. And I guess this was quite a thing in the early 19, uh, excuse me, early 1800s. Well, my husband also has an envelope with one of his late mother's curls. Really? Yeah. Which is kind of like cool, but creepy. I don't know. I mean, we all have, we have locks of baby hair, right? So how is that really different than taking someone's hair when they're older? Yeah. Good for them. Not for me. <laughs> <laughs> but when you die, can I take a clipping? <laughs> yes. Make sure you get the most ringletty piece. Yes. The perfect. I would only ever clip the most perfect curl from your head. That's right. <laughs> And shellac it so it's right. preserved forever. Okay, so... Shadow box it. That's right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay, so I want to tell you there's like a hair tale okay. about Beethoven. Okay. So bear with me here. Yeah. Anton Holm, a 19th century pianist and associate of Beethoven's, wanted something to give to his wife. Mm-hmm. He knew that she'd treasure some of Beethoven's hair. So he sent a request via a mutual friend, violinist... Violinist? Violinist. Violinist. Carl Holtz. Okay. Holtz showed up, excuse me, Holtz showed up at the Holmes with the lock and it was done. Done and done. Shortly thereafter, Anton Holm, Holm, the original guy, (laughs) was visiting Beethoven while working. keep thinking of Mike Holmes. (laughs) (laughs) Holmes on Holmes. That's right. Okay. Anton Holm was visiting Beethoven while working on a piano composition. He was doing some work for Beethoven. And it was brought to light that Holtz had deceived Holm. Instead of giving him Beethoven's hair, he gave him goat hair. What? Yeah. So Beethoven's like, I didn't give hair to Holtz to give to you. He must have been like pulling your leg. Right. Um, So Beethoven uh, famously ran for the scissors and right in front of Helm, cut off a chunk of his hair and handed it over with the declaration, this is my hair. Whoa. (laughs) And so the hair remained in the possession of the Holm family for many years before it was then passed along. So do you want to know where the hair is now? In a museum. Well, (laughs) if you can believe it, it was sold by Sotheby's London in an auction. Yes. Just a few months ago. Wow. The name of the auction is Important Manuscripts, Continental Books and Music Sale, FYI. Okay. Do you want to know how much it sold for? Guess. Tell me. No, guess. Guess. Uh, $2 million. Okay. Um, it sold for 35,000 pounds. Okay. Which is the equivalent of 43,000 US dollars okay. or 57,000 my yeah. My guess was not quite reasonable. No, no, no. But maybe there's like rabid collectors. Like, I know. 
Well, it's still, it's reasonable in that it's sold for three times the estimated selling price. Okay. So it's pretty crazy. Um, and I thought you were going to say that Sotheby's had like a special, like body parts and hair sale. sale. I know. And apparently Sotheby's does occasionally come across hair from that huh. time, like of kernels and royalty and all sorts of. I think I've seen something about Judy Garland's hair. Really? Similar, similarly. One of the big auction houses. But I want, but do they do like nail clippings? I don't know. <laughs> what do they do? Like, I think actually part of Beethoven's brain was taken for analysis as well. Wow. Which is pretty interesting, but not resold in auction. That, <laughs> who buys a brain? <laughs> if I only had a brain, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, that about wraps up my curl next door about Beethoven. He was very popular and his hair sort of represented his personality. And I think that's why there was so much interest in his, in his gray, like wavy hair at mm -hmm. the end of his life. Well, that was a, that was a really good one. I feel like it's also became towards the end, like a bit of a tongue twister. Yes. Holmes Palm and, and Holtz and the hair. <laughs> I know. I'm thinking like, now that you've rearranged the studio and I can see you, I'm like on the edge of my seat. How is she going to get through this? I know. I know. Uh, oh, boy. But wow. Okay, that 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 was good. So I'm going to go next, and now you get to find out if it's who you thought it was. Okay. Or, okay. <laughs> okay. So my curl next door is Margaret Eleanor Atwood. That's because, you know, her hair is so curly. One of the great things about her is that she really doesn't straighten it. Ever. So with so many other of these celebrities uh, or even well-known, you know, artists or whatnot, like you don't know who has curly hair. Half the time these people are sort of in the closet. So you have to figure out, you know, was it just styled curly for a few events, but it's naturally straight or is it really curly, but they straighten it all the time. She's just like, this is who she is. And it's always been wild and unruly. I'm so glad that you're doing Atwood. I was also considering Atwood. Yes. It was inevitable that one of us would one do of us Atwood would eventually. Soon. I mean, it's it's also topical. It so. is. I know. That's absolutely true. Okay. So she's 79 now. Or 80, maybe. We'll see. Something around there. Anyway, she was born in November, November 18th, 1939. And if you don't know her... She's a Canadian poet, novelist, literary critic, essayist, inventor, teacher, and environmental activist. And of course, she has very curly, unruly hair. Yeah, I did say inventor, and I'll get to that in a second. Okay, cool. <laughs> so, since 1961, she's published 17 books of poetry, 16 novels, 10 books of nonfiction, 8 collections of short fiction, 8 children's books, and 1 graphic novel. So she's extremely prolific. Um, she's won tons of awards and honors, including Man Booker Prize, Governor General's Award, National Book Critics Lifetime Achievement Award, and I'm just naming the ones that, you know, I know about, that, but there's more. Lots of awards. So she's the inventor and developer of the long pen. What is that? So the long pen is a remote signing device, and... It, cool. She came up with it in 2004, debuted it in 2006. It allows a person to remotely write in ink anywhere in the world on a tablet. And then I guess there's a robotic hand at the other end. So basically she can sign books. 
She can be doing a book signing. She can be like on a beach in Maui and have a book signing at some bookstore and actually sign people's books. So I'm sure there's other applications of this long pen because it says also like related technologies. So, I mean, there must be some patented technologies about it that can be used in other ways. But interesting. How does it work? Oh, I don't know. Like what's, I I can see it on this end. She's signing a tablet or something, Mm -hmm. but then on the other end. It's like, it's recreating what, it's long pen kind of makes sense because it's like what she's doing on the tablet is recreated with a robotic pen and hand somewhere else, anywhere else and doing kind of the same thing. Is she known, I, I had heard in the past that she doesn't really like public appearances. Hmm. She's quite, um, she's very private. I don't know if she's shy, if it's like a painful, shy sort of situation, but she's private. She doesn't like really getting out. And that's why she created the Maybe. pen. Maybe. That, that could be. I didn't really get into, like, I studied more about kind of her history and what she's sort of known for in a couple of incidents. Um, but in terms of her personality, I mean, that might make sense. Mm-hmm. She certainly probably got a lot of fans after this big of a career. So also we know a number of her works have been adapted for film and television. And that's really increased her exposure, and especially in the past few years with the Hulu series of Handmaid's Tale. That's right. So her work or her works encompass a variety of themes, including gender, identity, religion, myth, even climate change, power politics. And many of her poems are inspired by myths and fairy tales, which she was um, interested in from a very early age. Nice. So she was born in Ottawa. She was the second of three children. And her father was an entomologist. Um, And because of his research in forest entomology, she spent a lot of time during her childhood in northern Quebec in the woods. What is entomology? Studying insects. Oh. Yeah. So he studied insects in the forest, which sounds like my soon-to-be sister-in-law's childhood. And her father did, you know, studied water. And they were always taking samples of algae. So every family road trip was like getting, (laughs) going somewhere and collecting water samples. Wow. That's cool. Yeah. So I don't know if Margaret Atwood thinks it's cool. I, I I don't know how much fun my sister-in-law had as a child. But in any case, Margaret Atwood was in the forest a lot and traveling back and forth between Ottawa, Sault Ste. Marie, and Toronto. And she didn't go to school till she was 12. So she became a very voracious reader. And, you know, her parents were intelligent professionals. So, I mean, she learned something up until that point. Right. But then basically went straight into high school. Wow. So she was homeschooled and yeah. schooled within nature. In nature and reading books. Okay. And she liked fairy tales and grim and all that stuff. And she began writing poems when she was six years old. Amazing. So it's kind of one of those stories, I'm sure, same with Beethoven, where like clearly there's an inclination from a very young age. That's right. She was meant to be a writer. I think so. At a genius level. So her literary reputation really continued to rise in the 80s. And that's kind of when she had her start. Or she she started, sorry, she started writing before then. But I think the 80s was when she released, you know, The Handmaid's Tale, Cat's Eye, Bodily Harm was like 81, 85, around then. So a bunch of eponymous works 
in in one period in her career really kind of skyrocketed her. Good use of the word eponymous. Thanks. It's a 10 cent word. You can give me 10 cents That's later. Right. <laughs> Viewers, um, you can donate your 10 cents to. To the word jar. <laughs> <laughs> Did I say viewers? I meant listeners. That's okay. Maybe they're viewing us in their mind's eye. That's right. Uh, so the novel, The Handmaid's Tale, has been adapted into several works. So there was a film in 1990. Uh, I'm not going to, I can't pronounce this guy's name. The director was Volker Schlon, Schlondorf. Oh, maybe that's okay. Schlondorf. Harold Pinter wrote the screenplay. Oh. Mixed reviews. I wonder if that's the one. Have you seen that film? I can't Handmaid say that Tale? I have, no. With, oh God, what's her name? Natasha Richardson, I think, is Alfred. Hopefully I'm right. We watched it in school because I read Handmaid's Tale, I think, in grade nine. There was a musical adaptation as well, which is hilarious to me. Really? Um, Odd. Which the musical adaptation then resulted in an opera of The Handmaid's Tale. That makes more sense to me for it to be an opera as opposed to like musical theater. Right. Because opera can be really intense and dark. That's true. And musical theater, theater is more like, like show tunes. Yeah. So Schlaudorf, yeah. if you're looking <laughs> for a new uh, spin, hire Tamara Robbins Griffith, <laughs> who can help write some of the soundtrack. Okay. Bruce Miller's the one who uh, created the television series that started airing on Hulu in 2017. And the first season earned eight Emmy Awards. And Margaret Atwood also did a cameo in the very first episode as one of the ants at the Red Center. That's right. Do you remember seeing that? I do remember seeing that. Okay. So, Handmaid's Tale is a big deal. Now, she what's funny about Margaret Atwood, like she's kind of like I'm not a feminist. And it's interesting because like her work's been so interesting um to feminist literary critics, but she doesn't want to apply the label feminist to her work. And I wonder if that's a bit of the time that she came up in because it was sort of like after the second wave uh, in the 70s, and it was kind of like in the 80s and 90s, maybe feminism wasn't cool then. It was like, um, but she's also said, you know, when she talks about her work, she says, I don't consider it feminism. I just consider it social realism. So critics have still analyzed the sexual politics in her work and the gender relationships in her work. And she basically she said, you know, some feminists have historically been against lipstick and letting transgender women into women's washrooms. And those are not positions I've agreed with. So, okay, I, you know, I get that. But I think now in 2019, we're really embracing the word feminist and, and what it means and why it's important. So. I think, well, yeah, like now it more means it's more about equality. I think back then it was like, I don't know, just trying to get any sort of rights for women. Like, there's been so much, it's a different day. Like, it's such a different time for women mm -hmm. than it was 30 or 40 years ago. Yeah, and even beyond equality, like equity and privilege, you know, is part of more of the discussion now that, like, you know, it's not the same. It's not like we'll, we'll all ever get the same thing as men. Yeah. I, did I say equality or equity? You I think said I equality. Equi equitability. Equitable? Like, I... Well, that's equity. Okay. To have things be equitable. 
equitable and equity are, yeah, the same thing, (laughs) which is really what what we want, right? Because when someone's hasn't had the same opportunity, like it's not about just treating everybody the same. Yeah. Anyway, but let's talk about her hair. Um, more, more importantly, <laughs> more importantly, more important so, than equitability. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, this important conversation about feminism and uh, privilege. Yeah, never mind that. Never mind that. Let's talk about her wonderful hair. Well, I, I just think it's a big hole that we could go into, and then we'll need a lot more time for the podcast. But totally. Like, you know, it's just interesting to me that this show is so provocative beyond like it's taking her work and really like it's it came out at such a crazy time you're talking about the handmaid's tale the handmaid's tale oh, specifically yeah. like it came out at such a crazy time in the me too movement and like american politics, politics. yeah that it seemed so relevant and so much discussion around it was about feminism and then for her to be like yeah no not really it's just you know society and she said um more about like dystopian futures or um dictatorships and things like that well it's so interesting how art is always interpreted by the recipient right Mm -hmm. so she may not have intended it that way but it's being received that way so Mm -hmm. much so and i i don't know if you're going to get to this Mm -hmm. i don't want to steal your thunder but there's handmaids that have gathered in the U.S., right? They dress up as handmaids and they yes. show up to protest, right? I wasn't going to bring that up, but yeah, I mean, that's pretty powerful. That her art basically has, you know, become part of the a big political movement. That's right. Whether or not she intended it that way, yeah. So how can it have a life of its own? Handmaid's Tale was required reading for you in high school. Yes, in in grade nine, I think mm-hmm. grade nine English. It wasn't mandatory for us, although I did do a book report on The Edible Woman. Oh. In high school? In high school, yeah. Um, And I presented it to the class and I brought cake because the book is all about the main protagonist no longer eating because she sees feelings and emotion in all sorts of foods. So she doesn't even want to eat like carrots because they're alive. Whoa. But I got an A on the report because I brought cake. like a major eating disorder. Yeah, absolutely was. Okay. Okay. Back to you. Uh, back to hair. Back to hair. Because, you know, her hair is pretty awesome. Now, this is a story sort of about hair, but not just about her hair. So let's just say we know she's a prize-winning author, but in the 2015 federal election, she found herself at the center of a censorship debate. Um, So she penned a satirical column lambasting Stephen Harper, who was the prime minister at that time, which became an unusual point of interest and talking point in the lead up to that election that October. So it was in the National Post. And basically, so Stephen Harper had made comments about Justin Trudeau's hair, basically saying like, you're a pretty boy, pretty boy, nice hair, Justin. And her whole column was, okay, now you've brought hair into the discussion. Like you're trying to undermine this candidate by making fun of his hair. And what we kind of take to the general population saying, if you say like, nice hair, Justin, you're basically saying, He's just a pretty kid. He doesn't know anything. He's not going to make a great prime minister. And so she wrote about it saying, 
with this provocative op-ed. So basically, she was um, arguing that the debate had trivialized the election hair and election issue, really. And then she made comments about her own hair, too, because she said, you know, people have described her hair like in a if people think that she's amazing and they're trying to describe her hair in a positive light, they would call it like pre-Raphaelite. And if they think she's um, and if they're trying to describe it in a negative light, they would call it like unruly or wild. Right. So it's kind of making it about the, per- the way the person looks. So interestingly, then she said, of the three national male leaders, which one travels with a personal grooming assistant, lavishly paid for in whole or in part by you, gentle taxpayer, so that none of his hairs will ever be out of place? Hint, initials are SH. So National Post then took this down off their website and it turned into like a thing on Twitter, like Hairgate. Hairgate. Hairgate was trending on Twitter. Um, oh, for real? They called it Hairgate? They did. Oh, oh I, I thought you that knew up. that. No, I made it up. I was like, wow, Damn. Stephanie's done a lot of research because she knows about Hairgate <laughs> no, already. I, I just made it up. Although maybe I knew that subconsciously. Okay, go on. So the hashtag Hairgate began trending nationally on Twitter by evening as us- users questioned why the newspaper's website would remove a humorous column related to the federal election campaigns, particularly one written by a prominent Canadian writer. And it's an opinion column. It's an op-ed. That's exactly its purpose. So she, and she said that, so then they republished it with edits. And she said she was really outraged because she felt like she was being censored. And she said the piece had been submitted nine days before it was published. So if there was anything that they really wanted to edit out, they should have done so in the beginning. It was just, it was interesting because she herself has, you know, this hair that's really attention grabbing. It is. And and she also, you have to look up the Sunday Times style photo shoot she was part of because that's all, she was featured, obviously, the Hulu series is extremely popular. Now they've had three seasons of The Handmaid's Tale. It's, you know been critically acclaimed. And now she has a long-awaited sequel to The Handmaid's Tale that she's finally come out with. Um, So I think she's promoting it, however shy she may be. She participated in a photo shoot for the New York Times, yeah, style section. She looks kind of witchy, but amazing. Like she's fully dressed in haute couture and it's very impactful so I suggest you check that out but it's cool seeing pictures of her if you do a um, google search on Margaret Atwood and see you know what her hairs looked like over the years when she was younger as she got older you know she she seems to never straighten it which I think is pretty cool she's rocked it and these photos are phenomenal the photos it's all about her hair uh, yeah it's it's amazing and it just um her the styling of that shoot is pretty amazing, too. Like, what she's wearing, how she's posing. Like, I guess our direction in general of that photo shoot is pretty amazing. But, uh, yeah. As is Awood, just in general. And you know what's so funny? She lives in Toronto. Mm-hmm. And Torontonians are so proud to have her here. In fact, it was it 
the last election or a couple municipal elections ago, mm-hmm. there was like a underground movement to try to get her to run for mayor. Oh, <laughs> because the city population loves her so much. And at right. the time, it was felt that the candidates on offer were not strong enough. Interesting. Not that she was interested whatsoever in right? being mayor. Not that she's shy. <laughs> Yeah, not if she's shy and also is like she she clearly has political leanings. Like a lot of right. her writing is about politics mm-hmm. and the dystopian future and all that business. Anyways, just a little fun fact. Yeah. Well, that's Margaret Atwood and her hair. And I didn't even get into her activism and all that stuff. That's but right. She's she's uh, someone who makes you proud to be Canadian. And, Absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. And her books are phenomenal. I, I need to read more of her books because I've probably read the top top ones most popular ones but you know it's hard to keep up I'm in a book club and basically I can read what the book club chooses and then I'm sort of a slow reader so I don't get a lot of other books in we did an Atwood in our book club too which one Onyx and Crake one of the she has a trilogy oh okay I think it was Onyx and Crake mm-hmm. one of, or one of them in that trilogy I can't remember that's bad it was good though good well, that was a great curl next door. I'm so glad you did, Margaret Atwood. Wow, Margaret Atwood and Beethoven. This is a really serious podcast, people. Yeah, we didn't really provide that many hairstyling tips today. <laughs> That's okay. We're not beauty next experts. Time. We're not beauty experts, and this is a podcast about, you know, general interests. That's right. Well, that's it, listeners. Okay. Check us out on... Curl Next Door podcast on Instagram. And if you have stories to tell us, corrections to send us, great styling tips or other interesting people that you think we should profile, let us know at curlnextdoorpodcast at gmail.com. All right. Thanks so much, Tamara. Thanks, Steph. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.